It is Tuesday, June 1st. This is the Macro Setup. Joined, as always, by my dear friend, Dan Nathan. This Macro Setup brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Nadex, the leading U.S. exchange for binary options, call spreads, and knockouts. Dan Nathan, how are you? I'm doing great, Guy Dami. We got a holiday-shortened week here, but we got tons of economic data coming up here. Macro markets are going to be moving. They're already moving around already. There's a lot. Let me tell you something. Today could be one of those days, Tuesday, yeah. June 1st, where you go back three, four, five months from now and say, hey, you know, that was a weird day, that Tuesday after Memorial Day. A lot of weird things happening in the market. But let's start with some headlines, Dan, because that's yeah. our want to do. Yeah, it is. I mean, this week, we're going to get that May jobs report, the all-important May jobs report. And if you think back to about a month ago, Guy, there was a lot of optimism that, you know, we were kind of closing that gap. You know, wait, what is the dual mandate for the Federal Reserve? I think to make sure the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ both go up simultaneously. That's their dual oh, mandate. No, no, no. no it's that, not. I no, know that's not. my dual mandate. That's right. what I think. But I know, listen, you can at me all you want, but listen, right. we know, Dan, that um, one of the primary goals is to make sure these markets are stable, and they've done that excessively well. Right. Well, I was going to say stable prices and full unemployment mm -hmm. here. And, you know, one of the um, areas of optimism as we kind of headed into May last last month was that we were kind of getting to that kind of full employment. We we're making some progress here. We we're getting that last 10, 20 million workers that had kind of been displaced from the pandemic back to work. So that that May um, number is going to be really important because that April number guy was really disappointing here. And at the time, we're starting to hear about, you know, a lot of pressure that the Fed is kind of leaving their foot on the gas pedal too long, creating asset bubbles, waiting to get those last whatever million people back into the workforce. Look, the April number was a disaster, an yeah. unmitigated disaster. I think it came out of 200 and something thousand. I saw estimates anywhere from 800,000 a million five. I mean, it was just, it was a disaster. But you know what? Something interesting happened that day, and we talked about it on the macro setup. Tenure yields, which closed, I think, on that, uh, the day before around 158, immediately went down about 1.47%, only to spend the rest of the day going higher yeah. and basically closing unchanged. And I think what that told you was, although the number, the headline number was a disaster, there were reasons for it to be a disaster. And I think you're going to see, in my opinion, you're going to see a pretty hot jobs report here. And it's going to put them, put them, the Fed, in that box that continues to get smaller and smaller. And, the, and I think the reason why that jobs number was so poor is because people, it, people were being paid basically not to go looking for a job. And this is not a political comment. That's just yeah. the facts. There are more jobs out there than people looking for jobs, as it turns out. So the jobs are there. You just got to get people to pay you more. And that's what you're starting to see. We've seen that over the last three or four weeks that companies on their own are raising their minimum wage anywhere from 15 to, I think, $18 an hour. Yeah, well, we'll see. Obviously, there's some seasonal things there, too. Um, you know, we do know that expanded unemployment benefits are going to roll off at some point this summer. So you might see that May number um, actually still disappointing. But, Guy, back to that dual mandate is that kind of stable prices. The Fed has been telling us for a very long time that they think um, higher prices in the term in the form of inflation is transitory. <laughs> yeah, right? I know. So, so but, well, here's the point. We're having hot inflation reads and we're having weak jobs data. So if we were to have one other month of disappointing jobs data, but continuing hot inflation, that still gives them enough cover to do nothing over the course of the summer. Uh, yes, I agree with that. But that, that what you just outlined there is pretty problematic. You know, yeah. if you continue to see prices go higher and disappointing jobs number, I mean, that's something that you have to say, wait a second, has something fundamentally changed out there? And 
have they gotten this wrong? We're not there yet. We're not close to being there yet. But that's the the, the pastiche that you outlined there, Nathan, is not a good thing. I'm not going to use the witch's brew yeah. thing because I use mm -hmm. that for higher rates and lower dollar. But it's something I'll come up with some fun little saying sometime during the show. But that's not a pretty picture, Dan, Nathan. No, it's not. I mean, and then, you know, what did we hear during the Q1 earnings season? We heard a lot about input prices going up. And, and here's one we just got to hit. This is from Bloomberg here that oil hits the highest level yeah, since 2018. Um, you know, listen, OPEC just said they're going to actually be coming back online with 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 what? 450 barrels, uh, 450,000 barrels a day, that sort of thing. I mean, listen, should that kind of ease some of the input pressures from high oil prices? I mean, the fact of the matter is we're going to hit the charts in a little bit here, guy. You know, crude oil is breaking out of this consolidation sure it's been in for the last few months here. What is your take on some of these um, commodity input prices that are, you know, some have cooled off, some related to the housing market, that sort of thing. Thing, but but the oil trade seems on and we're gonna hit the charts the charts are pretty fascinating as much as the world wants to get away from oil i mean it's still it's basically still the lifeblood of global economies whether you like it or not again not a political statement that's just fact and and the, as the world now this reopening trade seems to be manifesting itself all across the globe oil prices by definition go higher oh by the way remember a lot of these a lot of these places went offline last year you know year and a half ago on the back of what they thought was going to be a longer than expected delays, right? Now, all of a sudden, you have this robust demand, uh, people trying to come back online, and it's going to manifest itself in higher prices, and we're seeing it now. You will probably correctly say this, too, is transitory. I'm not so convinced that it is. And, oh, by the way, we're going to talk about this later as well. That weaker dollar is not helping the cause either in terms of higher prices. So you got a lot of things at work here. Obviously, some of these uh, levered names in the oil space, we're not going to get into individual stocks, but they've done really well. And I think this oil higher is going to let it's going to continue longer than the market realizes it can. You know, what, the, the market overshoots to the downside. We've seen that number of times. It also overshoots to the upside. And I think that that's what we're in the midst of now, Dan Nathan. Yeah, I, I guess what I feel like is that, you know, we're coming out of this this pretty um, horrible period, whether it be the health crisis, the economic crisis. We saw massive dislocations in supply chains. We saw, you know, the, the amount of industry that went offline. Um, I, I totally get it. So I, I can see how there's a lot of economists and strategists kind of um, suggesting that these changes are going to be structural going forward. I just don't know what's really that different um, this time around. When you think about all the people that were, call for inflation for all these different reasons post the financial crisis. And we know that what China did as far as their infrastructure spending and, and, and the demand for resources that caused, but we still saw oil go back to like, let's say 20 bucks. And this was in 15 and 16. We're going to get to some of the reasons why. So right now it feels like these are structural changes despite the move towards, you know, carbon neutral sort of oil companies, which seems kind of goofy, um, but who knows? And then if we're going to use the term goofy, let's just go to this other headline really quick. Right, and here. I put that headline up and yeah. let's just say something real quick. We've talked about this and this is not meant to be glib, but there's the old saying in the commodities market, the, the you know, the cure for higher prices is higher prices. And I don't think we're there yet. So in terms of the overshoot, I think we're still in the middle of it. Now, whether that's transitory or not remains to be seen. But I think in the meantime, prices can continue to go higher, which is not what's going on 
to this headline in the Bitcoin, Dan Nathan. Yeah, and we're just going to bring up Bitcoin because there are, you know, there's a lot of things to talk about in the macro investing landscape that Bitcoin actually ties into. You know, a lot of theses that whether it be the dollar, whether it be gold, um, whether it be other commodities, whether it be just central bank policy in general. So it's really important to kind of keep a head uh, a headline like this top of mind. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, the entire crypto universe about a month ago was two point six trillion dollars. Um, it's probably down 30 to 40 percent um, across the board here. Bitcoin, the largest, actually acting the worst. So I do think it's interesting to see JP Morgan commenting on the Bitcoin guy. And you have some thoughts as it relates to just how um, you thought, you know, listen, there's t- tons of pockets of risk that we've been talking about on the macro setup as they relate to like equity markets, that sort of thing. We saw SPACs going crazy. We saw recent IPOs. We saw crypto. It all speaks to kind of meme stocks, this over exuberance about just kind of, um, you know, investing. And so one by one this year, we've seen all of these kind of come down um, some someplace um, to, to a level that just makes a lot more sense than they did at their highs. Listen, I'm not sure where J.P. Morgan is coming up with this, but I will tell you that the greatest technician out there, Carter Braxton Worth, who has joined us a number of times, you know, he said over the last couple of weeks that he doesn't think it's over either, by the way. And he thinks Bitcoin can actually trade back to that. If you remember, I think it was December 2017 when it peaked at 20,000, 20,000 became resistance on the upside, held there for a while, then off to the races. Carter thinks it goes back to 20,000. Now, the reason why we're bringing this up And if you could put up the next slide, the first slide being that of the S&P 500, Dan Nathan. If you look at the SPX, I would have thought, if you had said to me, Guy, listen, Bitcoin's going to go from 65,000 down to 32, 33,000. What's going to happen to the S&P? I would have said we're going to be, you know, 3,500, if not lower. And here we are uh, effectively within a moon, within basically earshot of an all-time high. It's remarkable to me. I thought there would be absolute risk to the broader market if Bitcoin came off the way it did. And that has not manifested itself. Now, maybe there'll be a lag. I don't know. But what it's telling you is maybe they're not as correlated as I thought. And again, we're talking about risk assets across, you know, a number of different things. And I thought this would manifest itself and make its way into the broader market. It has not so far. Yeah, I guess where you and I disagree on this is that, you know, when equities lead to the downside, Bitcoin ends up catching up. We have plenty of data that shows that. Go back to Q4 2018, the S&P 500 sold off nearly 20%. Bitcoin in that period when the when the markets were kind of in a free fall, I think got cut in half or so. And then in Q1 2020, guy, when the S&P 500 sold off 35%, again, the S&P or Bitcoin was down, you know, 30%. So I, I think it's kind of more equities leading the way when you see a massive risk off. And I go back to the fact that, you know, Bitcoin, you know, is a trillion dollars. It's like basically half of Apple. You know what I mean? It's not that important in and of itself. But what have we seen as crypto has sold off? We've seen money move back into some of these meme stocks, some of these SPACs, that sort of thing. So I think that's more the relationship than the broad market. And, you know, that S&P 500 chart, that's the one year guy. What do we call that? The hungry what? The hungry? Uh, What do you call it? The hungry alligator. I'm trying to figure out what where the alligator is. And I'm curious as to why you wouldn't use a crocodile. Crocodile to me is much more fearsome than an alligator for you folks that have been to the... Oh, yes. Crocodiles cause many more deaths than alligators. But that's another show for another time. But what I'll tell you is you drew a great uptrend line. Listen, it's held to the penny, as Carter has said. And that uptrend line, you know, if we were to test it again, it probably comes in the form of 4,100 or thereabout. And I do think we're going to test it. And oh, by the way, that 3750 level, the 200-day moving average, I think is absolutely in the crosshairs. Now, 
I don't know what's going to be the catalyst. I thought there'd been a number of catalysts over the last month, month and a half that would have taken us there incorrectly, by the way. But, yeah. you know, there's something out there on the horizons. Maybe it's a dollar uh, breaking down. We'll talk about that later. Maybe it's yields going higher. We'll talk about that later. Or maybe it is Bitcoin finally getting that 20,000 level that I think Carter Worth and maybe JP Morgan sees as well. But that trend line is intact. The next level of support is 4,100. That will be the point on that trend line-ish. But the 3750 level, that 200-day moving average, that's that should be your bullseye, Dan Nathan. Yeah, listen, you know, with the S and P 500, we're you know five months into the year, up maybe close to 13 percent. The idea of it coming back towards that uptrend and holding there makes you know a lot of sense if you're bullish. You want to see that kind of back and fill. It gives you momentum to make new highs, and we had a series of new highs, um, you know, since those November lows here. Listen, as far as that 200-day moving average is concerned, which is the March lows guy. You know, your guess is as good as mine, what makes it happen. I don't think it's going to be the dollar going much lower. I think it's going to have to do with rates going much higher. And, mm-hmm. and you've been on that train. We're going to we're going to look at rates in a second. So to me, it would have to be, you know, some sort of real major policy shift on the rate front by the Fed to do that. Otherwise, I feel like as long as they keep jawboning rates lower, equities have a bid here. And, you know, let's move to the NASDAQ 100 because the NDX is really interesting. If you look at this thing, you see that it's really lagged behind the S&P 500. We've been talking about it a lot. It's up 6.5% on the year. That's about half the performance of the S&P 500. Not something that we have seen too often over the last 10 years or so. But again, that thing has held its uptrend from November. It just doesn't have the sort of gusto that the S&P 500, we've seen diversification away from some of those kind of secular growth names in tech and more cyclical names as it relates to, we were just talking about energy, industrials, financials have obviously um, seen a nice um, run outperformance since November also. This is more valuation call, right? I know you know that, but you look at the S&P, I mean, that's the move from growth into value, value in the form of the S&P, growth in the form of the NDX. And this chart really illustrates that. But again, you, know, you drew a great trend line and we've touched it, you know, the three points that you, you outlined. The next point of support probably comes in the form of about 13,200-ish or thereabouts. But again, like the S&P 500, that, fit, that 200-day moving average of 12,600 or thereabouts comes into play. And we really haven't tested it in a long, long time. You can just look at this chart and say, hey, guess what? Going back to last summer, we haven't even come close. When does that manifest itself? And I think it does soon. You know, you have mean reversion at some point. It's remarkable to me that we haven't. You have to ask yourself, at what point do we? And I think we're getting closer and closer. And if this rollover continues, and again, I think you made a great point. The rollover is going to continue in the form of rates going higher. Well, then you might have a problem in the NDX, Dan, Nathan. Yeah, I, I guess what's really interesting about the NASDAQ right here, Guy, and you talk about valuations. I mean, some of the highest valuation pockets there it, within the NASDAQ have corrected meaningfully. And we just mm-hmm. said it, you know, IPOs, these companies that were trading, you know, recent IPOs, tech IPOs, SaaS companies that were trading 30, 40, 50 times sales, not earnings, not multiples of earnings, which might have been deemed expensive, but sales, you know, they've come in 30, 40, 50%. Same with SPAC, same with crypto and crypto related 
related stuff that has a little fairy dust on it in the fintech world, that sort of thing. So we've seen meaningful corrections. It's really the Microsoft, it's the um, Amazon, and it's the Google, and it's the Facebook, and it's the Apple. They've kind of held in there. Now, I know that Apple and Amazon have underperformed those others that I just mentioned. um, But the fact of the matter is, we've seen a move back into mega cap tech out of kind of high growth, high valuation secular names. Yeah, you know, there's a cure for the dust that you just mentioned as well. Get yourself a Swifter because that dust ain't going to work for much longer. Again, my opinion, you mentioned that, you know, the pixie dust all the time. I'm not really sure what it is, but there is there is a cure for that as well. I actually got myself a Swifter over the weekend. They work magically well. The next thing that we have to look at, Dan, is the RTY. Some people call it the Russell, the small cap index. You call it what you want. But I look at this chart and I don't know what it is, but I look at it and say, oh, wait a second. Uh, since basically February-ish, we've had a series of lower highs. What does that mean to you? Now, I don't know what chart formation this is, the the angry giraffe or some sort of animal. (laughs) But you know what? Those lower highs, it stands out to me. Now, again, if we get through the recent high, then all bets are off, and maybe we're going to test the February high, which I believe was in mid-March of 2360 or thereabouts. I don't think it's going to happen. And the reason why I don't think it's going to happen is I think rates are going higher and rates higher is not a necessarily a good thing for these small cap names. Yeah. So if you think about the small caps again, you know, these were domestically focused. They had been hard hit during the pandemic. Um, So we saw massive outperformance once we got the um, two things happened, right? We got the vaccines um, approved in November and then we had the election result. We had the promise of infrastructure spending. Um, And so, you know, there's a lot of financials also in the Russell 2000, the small cap. So they all benefited, um, you know, a lot, but we really have consolidated over the last few months. And you mentioned that series of lower highs, but I could also tell you there's a series of higher lows working. So this thing is, is definitely there's the tension is building again, I'd say, If we were to test that kind of uptrend line that had been in place, let's call it since early February, late January or so, um, again, we might be saying, all right, we're threatening a breakdown here. And then maybe that's when you get that move um, back towards that 200-day moving average. Again, I think it's going to take a major, major Fed policy shift to get equities going, testing those 200-day moving averages. You know, it's, it's interesting. You know, it's, it all comes down to bias, right? And that's why we work well together, because obviously yeah. my bias is, I think, lower. And you pointed the other side, which is a series of higher lows as well. I think it's important that you did that. And I was hoping you would. But I'll say this as well. You know, it's not coincidental, in my opinion, that this topped out just when the peak vaccine news yeah. topped out. And actually, if you were to overlay a Pfizer chart, it probably the same with the big cap pharma names. They all probably topped out around that time as well. I don't think it's coincidental and it's worth watching. But again, you're right. Lower highs, higher lows. It's got to it's got to correct itself or shake itself out one way. I think it shakes out to the downside, but let the charts make your let the charts be your guide, Dan yeah. Nathan. As All they right. say. Well, you you've been my guide in 2021 on Yields Guide. You're you Sherpa. Great, you've I am a, the Tenzig Norgay of you rates. Have, you've had a great, great call. Um, but we've consolidated the 10-year US Treasury yield. We have a year-to-date chart here. You had that early year ramp, and then what happened, guy? I thought we were going straight to two percent, man. I thought that yeah. the Fed had kind of lost control and that you know the bond vigilantes were taking over, and you know what I mean? It was it was kind of straight to two percent and then to the moon as as the kids say here we are we have this consolidation really since kind of earlier mid-march or so 
here. Um, you know, you think we're kind of making, you know, we're making um, a move towards 2% here, but we're we got to get above we're these. Basing. Yeah, we are basing here. Talk to me about it. Well, you obviously try, you're trying, what do the kids call it when you get, try to get some trigger. 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 trigger, you're trying to trigger me and you're being, yeah. you're quasi successful, but I've learned yeah. your game. So I'm not going to fall for that trap. But what I will say is, I think the tell came in the form of that last job summer that we mentioned earlier when rates plummeted down about 1.47 and then spent the rest of the day correcting back higher. To me, that was the market telling you rates do want to go higher. And oh, by the way, we started this with the jobs report. Well, if you get a robust uh, jobs report, my sense in that 175 level that we can't get through, probably going to test that again. So we'll see. 163-ish, hanging around. It continues to seem to uh, rates seem to re- reject that one and a half level, bounce off that one and a half level. We'll see. I think rates higher. There are a lot of people out there that think rates are going lower. Carter Worth being one of them, clearly or solely on a technical basis. But I think we're going to know a lot more uh, this time Friday. So I think the real tell guy will be if that May number is disappointing and to see what rates do. I, I don't really think, you know, I mean, listen, everyone knows that if we get a hot number and they can explain the April, um, then, you know, it's going to be off to the races as far as rates. And then you're going to see, all right, we got high on infla- uh, inflation data. We got hot jobs data. Extrapolate that over the course of the summer. And we're all going to be talking about Jackson Hole, late August, taper tantrum. So to me, I think it's interesting to go back and put this little consolidation in context, though, guy we have a five-year chart here and you see that 1.3 to 1.5 range in the 10-year u.s treasury yield that's got a huge support here we've been basing above that here so it'll be really interesting to see if that we break that low that we saw after the the april report and if we get back in there because what do they say about past support what does it become comes past support becomes resistance and those types of things i get it and listen you if we get a close below one and a half and, you know, next Monday we're talking about 147 <laughs> in the 10 year, then I think that 135 that you illustrate correctly, by the way, is absolutely in play. I just don't think it's going to happen. And that's what makes markets. But I like what you're doing. You're leading me down a road. <laughs> I really enjoy this. Well, let's go to the next road because I think this is as an important a chart as there is out there. This is the dollar index, Dan Nathan. So why don't you start? And then I'll fill around the blanks. Yeah, listen, you, you've had a great call on rates. And, and interestingly, you've also suggested that you thought the dollar was going to be going lower. It, it's a sell on every rally. And if you look at this chart, this is a one-year chart. You have been a seller on every rally. Now, sometimes those rallies get going. That one um, from February into late March, that was that was a... That was a widowmaker, as they say, because everybody was on one side of that ship. Everybody thought the U.S. dollar was going on. Everyone had their own reason for it. And it really bounced off that kind of 89 level and got to, what, 93 and a half or so. But then every uptick has been a sell. And you've been there. But now we're kind of at some crucial support in this kind of 89. I don't know. I guess you call it 88 to 90 sort of level here. What does it say to you right here? Do you press this short at near term support? Yeah, and I think if we can go to the next chart, which I think gives you a much better visual, I think you start to, right? Because how many times can you push down to those levels and hold, right? I mean, there's an old saying, the third time never holds on the downside, and it never is resistance on the upside. Here we are once again, making that push towards those 2000 and late 2017, early 2018 lows, (laughs) which probably come in the form of about 88 or so in the DXY. Oh, by the way, as you correctly point out, that was resistance back in 2010 when the dollar was underwater. So here we are. Critical level. I think we go through it. 
I think we go through 88 on the downside is not going to be positive for equities. I understand that a weaker dollar typically on the margins is a tailwind for equities, but I think you get that point of diminishing marginal returns where the whole thing flips. And I think it flips around 88. Now it's going to be interesting to see what coincides with that 88 level in the dollar index. Are rates going to be higher or rates going to start to back off? That is the witch's brew that I've talked about now seemingly for months. And by the way, other people are starting to put into their vernacular. I think Peter Hanks uh, of IGUS, of Daily FX being one of them, Dan Nathan. Yeah, listen, I, I just, I'm not nearly as smart as you, you guy when it comes to the currencies and that sort of thing. But like, as far as I'm concerned, I, I suspect that Dixie holds that 2018 low or so, um, the 2016 low in that 88 level. And I suspect that ultimately interest rates are going to start to move a little higher. I just don't see them going much, much higher here. So to me, I think you probably have a dollar that finds a home somewhere in this 88, 89 level and probably bounces from there. And then rates are probably not going too much lower than that 1.3% level, but I don't think they're going that much higher above 2%, which is your, your target, which all of that speaks to that shiny metal, that shiny metal that On looked like, it was, it looked like it was being thrown out, baby, with the bathwater. There was something oh called goodness. digital gold that was taken over. No one gave a crap about gold anymore other than you old timers here. But man, look at this chart. This is a one-year chart. And we saw, you had a great call in 2020. You thought gold was going to make new highs. It did. But for some odd reason, all it did is make a series of lower highs from early August down to its lows or its recent lows uh, in March. But, you know, again, you called a nice really double bottom, I guess you'd say, from August to March. It's had a huge run here. What do you do with gold? Well, there's two words for that, you know, topping out in August of last year. Those words are Bitcoin. I mean, that coincided yeah. with the resurgence, the seeming resurgence of Bitcoin. And then, oh, by the way, um, that last leg lower coincided with the U.S. dollar, which we just talked about. You know, trading up to that 94 and a half in the DXY, that was sort of the, the coup de gras, as they say. But you know what? Gold held like a champ, and now it's through that trend line to the upside. I think we're going to test those January highs, and I think once we do, we're set up really nicely to test and take out the all-time high we saw last summer. Because why? Because I think the dollar's going lower and rates are going higher. And we'll see what happens uh, with those inflation fears, and it manifests itself into gold going higher as well. Now, I think a lot of this is predicated, whether I like it or not, on what happens to Bitcoin, because whether it's coincidental or not, I don't think it is. Um, you know, the, the demise of Bit the recent demise in Bitcoin is obviously led to this research in gold. I think it's just a dollar thing, right? That 2.6 trillion that you mentioned, I think that would have found its way into gold if, if cryptocurrency didn't exist. And as we've taken market cap away from cryptocurrency, I think it's found its way into the gold market. So if you continue to see crypto under pressure, I think if nothing else, it's it's benign for gold, if not a tailwind for gold. Yeah, before we hit the Bitcoin chart, just so you know, guy, it's not two words, it's two syllables. Bitcoin. I know. I, I just want to be really clear. I just want to be really clear on that. Around. <laughs> All right, but look at this. I think it's kind of fascinating. You know, we like to, we, we're going to mention Carter one more time. That's his phrase, to the penny. Look at that 2011 high and look where gold is right now. I mean, that is a log chart here, but look, it, it, I mean, that is massive technical resistance on a long-term basis here. Let's see what it can do. I, I just, listen, I guess let's just go to Bitcoin here. Um, you know, go to the at, at its highs, 
It was a $1.2, $1.3 trillion asset class. Not huge. I mean, like bigger than, you know, 98% of the stocks in the S&P 500, but not huge. I guess why we talk about it is the ramifications it has for the $12 trillion gold market or, the you know, the trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of currencies that people look at versus it in the cross. I look at this Bitcoin chart and you look at the fact that it just took out what seemed to be a great deal of excess this year um, after a huge ramp last year. A lot of reasons why um, it doesn't only have to do with people's view that the the dollar is going to be facing a demise as it relates to reserve currency of the world. I guess the one thing that I would say with Bitcoin when it's all said and done is that it might be viewed if people can get the energy consumption costs, you know, that whole, you know, kind of scenario under control. Might it be a more uh, durable gold, you know what I mean, for the reasons that people buy gold or have bought gold over the last, you know, hundred, you know, 500 years, 1,000 years, whatever the hell it is. You could tell us you were around back then when people started doing it. <laughs> I was just um, waiting for that. I knew that was coming. But do you understand I mean, what was... I'm saying, Guy? And, 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 you know, like to me, it seems like a more practical form of an inflation hedge because of its scarcity and because of its portability. See, and I would push back and say, I think the I think Bitcoin was created um, for the fear of fiat currencies, not just in the United States, but globally in yeah. terms of what central banks were doing. And I think that's part of the gold story, but it's not they're not they don't replace each other. And I I find it fascinating, you know, for the folks out there that doesn't think Dan is a lover of the crypto or believer. Look at this chart. I mean, this was painstaking the amount of yeah. time you spent on this chart. As opposed to like my gold chart, which is just threw a couple lines up. You're dismissive of gold and you love the crypto. Look, 20,000, do we see it? Well, Carter thinks we do. JP Morgan obviously does as well. The fact that we're not really significantly bouncing from this 35,000 level in a meaningful way, I think it's got to be disappointing to the bulls out there in crypto. We'll see. But I do think, um, going back to gold quickly, I do think if we trade down to 20,000 in the Bitcoin, I do think we're going to absolutely take a look at the highs we saw in gold last summer. That's what makes markets. Yep. And that's why we draw these lines, Dan. Nathan. Yeah. And the last thing I would just say is that that near-term resistance, that's right around the 200-day moving average. That's also the February breakout near 42.5. So let's keep a close eye on that. And then that support level, listen, you can't get to 20,000 unless you get to 30,000. If you look at that support level guy, I mean, that's a huge level there. So um, to me, I, I do agree that Bitcoin and its volatility has lots of implications as macro investors think about rates, dollar, um, and gold. Let's go. we got a few minutes left here, guys. This is kind of your wheelhouse. Um, and when I say wheelhouse, I mean, when you used to trade crude oil back in the day, you used to move it around in a wheelbarrow. It was that <laughs> long ago here. Talk to us about this crude chart, because you've also been thinking that crude (laughs) has another leg higher here. Here's a one-year chart. It doesn't have that funkiness from um, last March, April here, but that's a good-looking chart right there. It's a very good-looking chart. And obviously, we're we're about to, if not taking out those highs we saw earlier this year, and we're doing it in a pretty meaningful way. I mean, again, you talk about a series of higher highs and higher Mm -hmm. lows. Well, you've been seeing it over the last five or six months. In crude oil, and there are a lot of reasons why we talked about it at the top of the show, but crude higher also is coinciding with the dollar lower and maybe the stabilization of higher rates. But this is not, um, in my opinion, and I said it at the top of the show, I'll say it again, higher prices can continue to go higher. I mean, these things will overshoot to the upside, and I think we're in the early innings of that overshoot, and we're seeing it now with this chart. Now, if we can go to the next chart. This doesn't look as interesting 
obviously because of that ridiculous minus $40 print we saw last April. And at a certain point, we'll get through that and we don't have to look at it anymore. But that's really skews this chart. It doesn't give you the visual that you want. But Dan is correctly, once again, drawing those horizontal lines. Again, they were support for a long time, resistance on the way up. And what he's pointing out now is, guy, don't get ahead of yourself. We're right at the point of resistance in crude oil. And he's correct technically. Yeah, I would just say that $77.5, $80 level, which was the breakdown level, you know, five or six years ago is going to be kind of important. It was also a level back in 2018 when there was a lot of optimism about global growth and tax cuts here in the U.S. and all that sort of stuff. Well, that's also where it kind of topped out a little bit. Um, so here we are. We're back to that kind of pre-pandemic 2019 level. But that looks like massive technical resistance to me. And it seems like everybody's playing for high, higher oil on the back of the reopening trade. So so to me, you know, who knows? Again, I think a lot of this stuff is going to be transitory. It doesn't mean that I'm in the Fed's camp. It just means that when I think about all these strategists and all these pundits talking the way they do, they like to get clicks. They like to sound like they know what the hell they're talking about. But to me, everything that I've been in since I've been in this business has been a bit transitory or mean reverting. Um, so to me, I, I kind of feel like, yeah, maybe get one last push in crude, but then it kind of comes back in. Here's the main chart, guy. That uh, Let's wrap this whole thing no, up. No, we're going to tie a bow on this whole yeah. thing this is where we started we yeah. started right with the taper and the fed and all yep. those things and this is how we're going to end it because what you're pointing out i mean obviously the blue line is the u.s dollar yep. the white line is crude oil and what you're going to correctly tell me dan is we've seen this movie before right we've seen when the fed tries to you know come in and taper and look what happens to the dollar dollar goes higher and looks what happens to crude oil crude oil goes lower and you're going to say, we started this by talking about a taper. Mm -hmm. Well, if that happens, you're going to see the same exact thing we saw six years ago. You may be right. I would submit that the genie's out of the bottle this time and they can't put it back in. But I want to hear your thoughts on this entire yeah. thing. I mean, listen, all I know is about past performance. And I know it is not indicative of future returns, Guy Adami. But like, let me just tell you this. When the Fed started talking about tapering back in 2014, you see what happened. The dollar started to rip and commodities like oil just got absolutely destroyed. I think oil at its lows in early 2016 was down maybe 65% from those, you know, 2013, 14 highs. And I'll just mention this. Yeah, there were growth concerns and there were China concerns, but don't think for a second that those things are not going to come back the further we get away from the other side of all the trillions of dollars in fiscal and monetary stimulus. So I just think that people have very short memories. And that move in the Dixie, that caused a lot of volatility on around the world on almost every major asset class. There were some sell-offs in the S&P 500, but it continued to go higher. And I think a lot of it has to do with one last trigger point here, Guy, Tina. There was no alternative because for the most part that, yes, the Fed started tapering, but they didn't get off a of ZERP. It took them like how many meetings in 2015-16 to get above 1% of the Fed funds rate? You, and in, in, in the course of 34 minutes, yeah. you used Tina, which I've never said in my life. <laughs> and you also used Baby with the Bathwater, yeah. which is just oh, two of those things that I can't stand. I'm so happy you didn't say sell in May and go away. That would have put me over the top. <laughs> but I think, listen, I think yeah. we looked at a lot of important charts. Quite frankly, I think this is the most important chart that we brought up. And it sort of ties the entire conversation that we had up in a nice little boat, Dan Nathan. So I'm glad you pointed this out. Look, I still think that blue line, that U.S. dollar continues lower, and I still think that white line crude oil continues higher. 
we'll see how right I am. But you know what? It's all going to come down to Friday, and that jobs number is going to tell the tale the exact way we started this show, Dan, and the exact the same way that we're going to end today's show. Well, listen, we, we covered a lot. There's a lot going on here as we head into the summer. We know that summers are always kind of funky sort of periods for markets. And I think the one thing I would just say that relates to the equity markets is that we've come a long way in a, a little more than a year or so here, and we're up 13% in the S&P 500. So your point of that, I don't know what the thing is going to be, but usually when we don't know what the thing is going to be that's going to cause a little market panic um, is, is, is just waiting to happen here, if you will. You know what I mean? So there's going to be something that we don't kind of see. And it might be an about face, for, uh, about face from the Fed on their policy as it relates to kind of bond purchases. I mean, again, they're buying $120 billion worth of treasuries and MBS a month. At this point, Guy, it seems a little unnecessary, don't you think? By the way, and just to sort of tie another bow on the bow we tied, and that yeah. all sort of coincides with some of the comments we heard from Mr. Gorman, the CEO of Morgan Stanley. Yeah a week and a half or so ago. It's interesting that he brought that up. Let's see how it plays itself out. But this has been, Dan Nathan, the macro setup, June 1st, by the way, brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Nadex. Get ready, Dan. The leading U.S. exchange for binary options, call spreads, and knockouts. Damn straight. See you next week. See you next week.